Husbands, you came back. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. I won't take attendance of those who did not come back, and we don't need to look around right now to see who did not come back. But we can give them the evil eye next time they come. Sometimes life can be mundane. Sometimes marriage can be mundane. And as a result, the choices that we make don't don't really seem to affect anything. You know, if I just keep going on as I do, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to do any harm. Our choices seem insignificant. But God wants us as husbands and as wives to heighten our view of our marriage. And He wants us to heighten our understanding of making right choices. I would suggest small right choices. I'm convinced that our lives are not so much made up of the big choices that we make. You know, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to marry an unbeliever. That's important. You know, I'm going to go to this college or I'm going to choose that job. I'm not going to drink at the family reunion or whatever. Those are big choices and we ought to make wise choices when it comes to those things. But I think that our lives are made up of the smaller choices. The day-by-day difficult decisions of, you know, should I do this act of goodness to my wife, to my husband? And, and here, I, I think that comes down to a proper view of our marriage. And Paul wants to, us to heighten our view of marriage by showing the proper way that we ought to view marriage and by showing us the proper way that we ought to live in marriage, specifically us husbands. So after talking to the women about their responsibility to submit in their marriage, to to joyfully give up their contrary view to the will of their husband, Paul now turns to the husbands in verse 25. And what you'll find noticeably absent is talk about headship or authority. You know, when we were looking at the wives' responsibility to submit, there was talk of headship and authority. But now when Paul looks at the husbands and says, all right, husbands, it's your turn. He doesn't say, exercise your authority over your wife. Make sure that she's following. No talk of that. Instead, the focus is on something that we would not expect. And that is uh, the focus of self-denial. That we are actually to give up ourselves for the sake of our wife, just like Christ gave himself up for the sake of his church. Let me read this passage for you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. This is the Word of God. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Husbands, we're going to be told how we are ought to how we ought to love our wives, and we're going to be told why we ought to do that. The way that you love your wife is the way that you love yourself. And in loving your wife in this way, it provides a picture of how much Christ loves his church. So five points about loving your wife. Five points about loving your wife from the Apostle Paul, who's speaking, who's writing the inspired Word of God. Five points about loving your wife. Number one, loving your wife is required by Christ. Loving your wife is required by Christ. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And then verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own body. Verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife. Loving your wife is required. There's no question about what this passage is referring to. There's no question about who Paul is addressing. It's about husbands loving their wives. Their wives. And it's clearly commanded. We've seen in verses 18 and following that those who are filled with the Spirit do three things. The result of those who are being controlled by the Spirit. One is that they sing. They sing praises to God. To God and to other believers. And then two is that they give thanks in everything. And three is that they submit to proper authorities. Verse 21, be subject to one another. Be subject one to another. So wives, here's your responsibility to submit to your authority. And But Paul doesn't say, husbands, now you need to submit to your wife. Instead, he says, husbands, don't forget your responsibility in the marriage relationship to help them to submit. And again, it's not talking about, let me help you submit. I'll show you all the ways you need to follow me. No, it is about giving up yourself. So if you're unclear what loving your wife looks like, which is required, then Paul helps us at the end of verse 25. And here's the second point about loving your wife. Number two, loving your wife demands self-denial. Loving your wife demands self-denial. The second part of verse 25 says, just as. So how, how, Paul, can we love our wives? How can I love my wife? Well, just as Christ also loved the church, and what did he do? He gave himself up for her. If you think, men, that your responsibility as the leader in your marriage means that you can do whatever you want and that you can satisfy all of your own selfish desires, then you're wrong. That is not what leadership is. Christian leadership means sacrificing yourself for the sake of another. It means that we must deny Ourselves. It means that we must give up our personal pleasures, our personal desires for the sake of another, in this case, our wife. I mean, think about it. In what way did Christ give Himself for the church? Okay, it says, love your wives just as Christ gave Himself up for the church. 
So how did he give himself up for the church? Acts 20, 28 says that he purchased our redemption. He purchased the redemption of the church with his own what? With his own blood. And so the standard or example of self-denial is given to us by our Savior. It's seen in what He did for the church. If you're not loving your wife that much, then keep working at it. See, men, when we get married, we were hoping that our wives would love us as much as we loved ourselves. You know, maybe if we can just add one more person to loving myself, then I can keep exalting myself. That's not what love is. Love is not getting other people to love us as much as we love ourselves, but it actually is self-denial. It's loving that other person as much as we already love ourselves. So number one, loving your wife is required by Christ. Number two, loving your wife demands self-denial. Number three, loving your wife has a purpose. It has a goal in mind. Verses 26 and 27. So that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, why would we ever give up ourselves for the sake of our wives? Why do we ever deny ourselves for their benefit? Well, the answer is here in verses 26 and 27. The same reason Jesus gave up Himself for the church, and it is to sanctify her. The goal of Christ's love in verses 26 and 27 is to sanctify the church. The word sanctify means to make holy, to set apart. In the Old Testament, you had all sorts of items that had to be consecrated or sanctified. Remember like the golden cups and the golden bowls and the priestly garments and the priests themselves? What did that mean? That those things were holy. That they were sanctified. They were consecrated. The meaning of this is that these items were set apart. Even a cup was set apart for the purpose of God's service, wasn't it? Here's the way Christ loves us. He loves us in a way that leads us to sanctify us, to, sanct- to sanctification, so that He sets us as a church apart for the work of God's service. This is how much Christ loves us. Well, how is He doing that? Well, the last part of verse 26 tells us, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word. So the way that God... Christ sets us apart as a church for His purposes, for His service, is by washing us. I don't know about you, but I have never been to a wedding where the bride came in all dirty and her hair was all disheveled. You know, no makeup on. No, she comes in. She has cleaned herself. She makes herself as spotless as possible. Her hair done is just is done just perfectly. Makeup done by a professional. She wants to present herself as pure and clean for her groom, doesn't she? This is what Jesus Christ is doing for us as a church. He's cleansing us. He's purifying us for the time at which we will be His bride. He's cleansing us. How is He cleansing us? The end of the verse, verse 26, tells us with the water of the Word. He's making us more and more pure through the cleansing of the water of 
the Word. Isn't this what Jesus prayed in John 17, 17? Sanctify them with Your truth. Your Word is truth. Right? So cleanse them. Set them apart for God's pur- for Your purposes, God, by Your truth. Well, Your Word is truth. So cleanse them with the water of Your Word. It's as if we're getting a bridal bath. We're getting all cleaned up and spotless for that day when we're presented before Christ. So that on verse 27, we are presented as spotless and blameless, holy. I mean, doesn't Jesus deserve a perfect bride? He does. And He demands it, in fact. And so He is cleansing us. He's getting us to a place where all of our wrinkles are gone, all of our spots are gone, all of our blemishes are gone, and He's doing that through the washing of the water of the Word. You see, as a church, our beauty treatment is not done. In Esther, we saw one of the things that the Persians would do before having a young girl come before the king was that she had to go through 12 months of beauty treatments before she could even come and see the king. And in a way, that's what Christ is doing with us. His church, He's purifying us. He's making us more and more holy. And the beauty treatments are not done until Christ returns for His bride. When when He has purified us to the place that He wants us, He will Come for us, and He will marry His church. Oh, Christian, you may feel very ugly spiritually, and the, f- the finished product may feel like it's very far away. You know, I've got so much sin and corruption and spots and wrinkles spiritually. But understand that God has a plan to make you spotless, and He will carry out that plan for you. So recognize that this. This cleansing process is not often fun. You know, it's like getting hair removed from an unwanted place or getting dirt removed. Sometimes it doesn't feel very good to, have, to, to be cleaned in that way, does it? It may be painful for a moment, but in the end it's for our good. Christ has given Himself. He's given up His life so that you could be pure, so that you could be clean. So, if the goal of Christ's love is to set us apart as a church for service of God by cleansing us with the water of the Word, the, the, the way that this relates to our relationship with our wives, husbands, is that we also ha- ought to have a similar goal. That is, that our wife is sanctified. Now, God's not telling us here that we need to die in order to sanctify our wife. Some of us may have to die in order that our wife can live, but that's not the point. Instead, I think the point is for us as husbands that we need to have the same goal for our wife as Christ has for the church. And that is that we want to see our wife sanctified. We want to see her set apart for the purpose of God. Now, unlike Jesus, we can't do the sanctifying. We can't force her to change. We, we can't, you know, we, we can't change her heart. But the very least, we can lead her to grow in her sanctification. We can protect her from what will take her away from that goal that is best for her. So, so Christ's purpose-driven love serves as a model for us as husbands. We ought to be totally committed to the overall well-being of our wife, especially her spiritual well-being, so that we would be willing to go to the greatest extreme to see her sanctified. Just like Christ did. He went to the greatest extreme to see us as a church sanctified. 
Now let me ask you men. Is your wife more like Christ now than she was when you got married? Or is she less like Christ than when you got married? Or, or let me say it another way. Is your wife more like Christ because of your self-sacrifice? Or is she more like Christ in spite of your selfishness? Our main responsibility as a husband is to love our wife in such a way that leads her to sanctification. To lead her to greater holiness. Now, we want to ask and answer the question, to what extent should I love my wife? To what extent should I love my wife? And that's number four. Number four, loving your wife should be without restraint. Loving your wife should be without restraint or without limit. Verses 28, 29, and 31. Okay, so we see the model. We see the command. Love your wife. This is Christ loved the church. And why? So that he can sanctify her. Then 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Okay, here's a very simple way to think about it, men. When you think, how ought I to love my wife? Think about it in the way that you love your own body. Well, how do we love our own body? Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh. Now, is that really true? In our society, we may explain some things away. Well, some people really do hate their own flesh. We can think of people who cut themselves or attempt suicide and think, well, that doesn't apply to them. They actually do hate their own flesh. And sadly, I think we've been trained by our society to think that that those kind of people need to build their self-esteem. But let me suggest to you that anyone who makes a choice to do those kinds of things is actually expecting some kind of satisfaction from that. Either, you know, maybe in cutting themselves they're looking for sympathy from other people, or they're trying to mute some greater pain. Right? They've got some serious problem that's going on and so they cut themselves or attempt suicide in order to mute that greater pain. It's like when you have a, a hurt, uh, you know, you've got a sore thumb or something and then you have the hammer, you know, someone says, here, let me take a hammer to your other finger and then you'll forget about it. Right? We, it's a way to mute the, the greater pain. Or in suicide, it's actually a way to eliminate the pain. I don't want this pain anymore. I'm not going to deal with this. And so when they do this, they actually love themselves. I would argue that masochism and suicide are actually a twisted expression of self-love. And, and I would take this statement in Ephesians chapter 5 to be absolutely true, not a general statement, that no one has ever hated himself. The Bible teaches us that no one struggles with self-esteem. That is not our problem. We struggle with others' esteem of us, don't we? <laughs> People don't love me as much as I love myself, and I can't get them to see that unless I do this. Then they'll really understand. And so everything in our lives is driven to, to raise other people's view of us, 
We, we love ourselves. And what Paul is saying is it's not wrong to love yourself. It's wrong to love yourself too much. I mean, think of, just as an example, King Saul. You know, he was one of the examples that we have in Scripture of a person who killed himself. And yet, why did he kill himself? Do you remember that story? He's on the chariot. He's bleeding profusely and he asks his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer won't do it. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And Saul knew that he would be disgraced as a person by the Philistines if he were to be captured by them. So he made sure that he killed himself so he didn't have to go through that. See, he, that was actually an, uh, an expression of his own self-love. So Paul says here, no one's ever hated themselves. We all love ourselves. I think everybody in this room can recognize, I love myself, you love yourself, right? So this is how we love our wife. How do you know that you love your own flesh so much? Well, the end of verse 29 tells us. No one's ever hated it, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. You see, to love ourselves is natural, and we do it without restraint or without limit, right? We feed our own bodies. We think about it when we have hunger pains and so we feed ourselves and we care for ourselves. Isn't it amazing? I mean, we, maybe this uh, a way to think about this is, is when we get sick. You know, or when we get injured. Every little scratch or, or hunger pain we attend to immediately. And... Men, our love of ourselves is especially noticeable when we get sick. You know, we act like it's the end of the world and we can't move, can't do a thing, can't do any of our responsibilities. We expect, expect everybody to wait on us and sometimes we milk it for days, right? And compare that to when our wife gets sick or when our kids get sick and have the same exact symptoms as us and we say, you're not going to do the laundry? You're not going to cook dinner? You know, we have no sympathy for other people. See, we're, we're quick to, to baby ourselves and our own needs, but we, we don't think much about denying ourselves and loving other people the way that we love ourselves. So how does this translate into loving our wife? This does not mean that when you love your wife, it's kind of like loving someone that's very much like yourself. Because that's not the way Christ loved the church. He's not loving someone who's a lot like himself, is he? In fact, somebody in the church, very different from who Christ is. And so, loving, to love your wife, instead what he's saying here in verse 29, is to love your wife is actually to love yourself. Look at the end of verse 28. He who loves his own wife loves himself. He's not saying... You need to get somebody else that's very much like you. Marry that person so then you can love them because you know they're a lot like you and it's going to be easy for you to love them. No, love someone who's not like you, who's very much different from you, and when you do this, you are actually loving yourself. It's as if you're nourishing and cherishing yourself when you're actually nourishing and cherishing your wife. The same sort of care and tenderness and thoughtfulness that you give to your own pain, your own circumstances, your own future, you ought to give to your wife. John Calvin said it this way, every man by nature loves himself, but no man 
can love himself without loving his wife. Therefore, the man who does not love his wife is a monster. He's actually saying that this text is telling us that when we don't love our wives, we, we are showing a self-hatred. We're actually doing damage to ourselves. Well, why would we ever do this? Why would we ever love our wife this much? I think the answer is found in the connection between the end of verse 28 and then the quotation verse 31. Look at the end of verse 28. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now you need to see the connection from Genesis 2.24, which is right there in verse 31. It's a quotation of Genesis 2.24. Verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 31 tells us that loving your wife is rooted in this one flesh union that comes together as a result of our covenant, as a result of our vows. Men, when you married your wife, you promised to stop living for only yourself and to begin living for her because now she becomes a part of you. When we love our wives in this self-sacrificial way, we actually love ourselves. Conversely, when I neglect my wife and fail to show her love, I'm actually doing harm to myself because she is part of me. So, verse 29, Husbands, love your wife like you love yourself. You nourish and cherish your own body, so nourish and cherish her body as much as you do yourself. There's nothing in here about getting your way there's nothing in here about domineering or abusing your authority. Instead, there's this sweet, tender, self-sacrificial, selfless, thoughtful, caring love for your wife. Loving your wife is required by Christ. Loving your, your wife demands self-denial. Loving your wife has a purpose, her sanctification. Loving your wife should be done without restraint or without limit. Number five, loving your wife is a picture of how Christ loves His church. If you don't get anything else this morning, recognize that loving your wife is a picture of a greater reality. Verse 32 reads, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, when Paul says mystery, just like in chapter 3, when he's talking about the church, he's not talking about mysterious, like, ooh, a little bit ethereal. I'm not sure how to understand that fully. And rather, it's when he's talking about mystery, he's talking about something that was previously hidden. You see, in the Old Testament, they saw the pattern, the covenant of marriage that was set up. They saw that, but what they didn't see was that that marriage actually pointed to something greater. And that is Christ's relationship with the church. Now, they got a little window into it when they saw God talking about His relationship with Israel in that way. But really, the picture is pointing to something greater than your relationship with your wife. It's pointing to the picture of Christ and how He relates to His church. Do you realize that the human marriage is finite? It has a beginning, Genesis 2.24, and it has an end, the next life. So human marriage is finite. It's temporary. But the relationship with Christ's, Christ and His church is eternal. It lasts 
forever. It had a beginning, but it, it will last forever. And so, what we find out here is this mystery, something that was previously hidden. We didn't know this in Genesis 2.24. And that is that, that our marriage is used to magnify and highlight the relationship of Christ and His church. That Christ has, think about this, united Himself as one flesh, like a husband unites himself with his wife. The main way that we're called to love this in this way is again to model for the church and the world that Christ loves the church in this way. You see, this mystery is great. Verse 30. See, all this talk about husbands loving your wives, I'm telling you to do this because it pictures not you. You're not the ultimate reality, but it pictures Christ and the church. This is what I'm really trying to show you. Look at verse 30. Just as Christ also does the church, verse 29, then verse 30, because we are members of His body. We're called to model Christ's love for the church. Now, to be clear, Christ did not die for His own physical body. He died for the body of believers. So when Paul says body here, he's not talking about Christ's physical body. He's talking about Christ's body, the church. Christ died for His body. Can you just take a moment to appreciate that? That Christ loves our church as much as you love your own body? Christ loves our church as much as you love your own body. That you nourish and care for it. You make sure that it's operating well and that it feels good. You do what you can to eliminate the pain. This is how much Christ loves His church like He he would love His own physical body. That Christ and so identified with us as His church that He calls us His own body. Do you sense that? That Christ nurtures and cares for you as His church? Do you see that Christ is not out to, to punish you or to harm you? That He's actually working to cleanse you, to purify you? So husbands, understand that loving affection... The loving affection that Christ has for His church is supposed to be modeled by us. We're supposed to mimic this with our wife. So, loving our wife is required. Loving your wife demands self-denial. Loving your wife has a purpose to see her sanctified. Loving your wife should be without restraint. And loving your wife is a picture. So, here's the challenge for us, gentlemen. Very simply, love your wife. Verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. So here it is. He wraps it all up by saying this. So love your wife. Love your wife as you love yourself. Ladies, plug your ears for a minute. I'll wave my hand when you can open, you can open your ears. Okay, Men, how much easier would it be for your wife to submit to your authority if you loved her in the way that this passage demands? How much easier would it be for your wife to obey God in her responsibility to give up her contrary view to the will of you if you loved your wife in the way that this passage demands? Like you love yourself. Okay, ladies. This next part is for you. 
because the last part of the text reminds us about what verses 22 through 24 says. Look at verse 33. And the wife must see to it that she respects or fears her husband. Okay, so this is just a summary of what she had already said in verses 22 through 24. All right, so let me, in conclusion, talk about the road ahead. Gentlemen, I would suggest to you that you need to move forward even if it's slow. Move forward even if it's slow. Start going in the right direction toward loving your wife. Now, you may be looking at your marriage right now in your mind and thinking, I've got so many things. It's like my basement is just filled with junk. You know, I've got so many things to do. How do I tackle this huge pile? Okay, so, so what do I need to do in this marriage? I don't know what to do. I can't just change this all today. I can't. I've tried, and I failed, and so I gave up. I would suggest to you, move forward even if it's slow. What is one right thing that you know you ought to do to your wife today? And do that thing. Again, your life is made up not of the big, big choices. It's made up of the little, small choices that you make day by day. Here's one of them. Start loving your wife. Loving your wife starts right now by purposing in your heart to do so. I, I toyed with the idea of just giving you some time, men, to reflect right now. You know, just 30 seconds to think about this and, and talk to God about this. It starts right now by purposing in your heart to do so. It continues, gentlemen, when you get home today. When you get home today, ask your wife if your marriage is a source of rich fulfillment and joyful service to God. And if she says that it's not, or should I say when she says that it is not, ask her if she would point out specific ways that you're not loving her like you love your own body. And then resolve to start working to change those things with the Spirit's help. If you're like me, you know several ways that you already need to be changing. But if you can't think of any, be good and helpful to ask her and to help and to help her to see that you're trying to move in the right direction. Loving your wife looks a lot like loving yourself. You never neglected to give yourself attention. Make your wife as much a part of your life as you yourself are a part of your own life. Think about her as much as you think about yourself. Loving your wife should have a goal in view. Christ didn't twist your arm or coerce you into sanctification. He didn't force you into it. He compelled you to respond voluntarily by showing you His love, didn't He? Husbands, love your wife in that way. You're not forcing them. You have to obey. That's not the idea. It is, let me serve you as best as I can. And then let's see what God does to your heart. Okay, I'm not suggesting that your wife is perfect and that she'll perfectly respond to you you know, maybe she'll take advantage of you. It doesn't matter, gentlemen. Your responsibility is to do what is right. And your responsibility is to love your wife. And so do that. Lead her to sanctification in your love. And don't grow weary in well-doing. If, if it gets tough, just keep on doing it. Keep on doing what is right. Keep on taking more steps of obedience toward loving your wife in this way. Loving your wife is an act of the will. We think of love often as an act of, of an act of emotion, 
and it certainly doesn't exclude emotion. I'm not calling for, you know, robotic, cold, lifeless marriages. That's not what I'm calling for. But if you think Christ died for you because He had some gushy feeling for you, you know, He had some, some warm fuzzies about you, then you don't understand Romans 5.8 which said that He died for us while we were sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Gentlemen, if you're going to give yourself to your, your wives, sometimes you're going to have to love her when you don't have the gushy feelings. Yes, your marriage should be full of emotion. You should want to have a life-filled marriage and a joyful one. But, but when you love your wife, because you know it's an act of the will and you do it even when you don't feel like it, then you'll be able to get through the difficult times. When the circumstances are dreary, when your wife's not responding the way you would expect her to respond, that's the road ahead, gentlemen. Start down the road. No one ever said it was going to be easy. No one ever said it was going to be easy. What happens when my wife does not submit? What happens when she's cruel to me? What happens when she doesn't appreciate what I'm doing? What happens if she doesn't recognize what I'm doing? Those are all great questions. And they help you to see what it must be like for Christ to love you as His church. Do you see it, men? Do you see how Christ didn't give up on you, His church? Just because, you know, you went your own way for a short time or because you started stumbling spiritually? I'm done with you! That's not what Christ did, is it? He's committed you, Himself to you. He, he promised never to abandon you. No matter how many times we fall, He's promised to be right there to pick you back up again. And when your marriage gets tough, Remember Christ's example. Allow the love that is seen at the cross meant to provide a spiritual stimulus to move away from a, from a disinterested love for your wife. Well, if she's not going to respond, I'm not going to give her any more love. Once she starts responding, then I'll show some love. No. Your response is to love her no matter what. When your marriage gets tough, remember why you are doing this. You're doing it for Christ's sake. There's nothing less glamorous in the eyes of our world than to love your wife in this way. But there's nothing more worthwhile in the eyes of Christ than to love your wife in this way. So, I would suggest to you that you need to work tirelessly at your marriage. And the reason you need to do that is because Christ jealously guards that image of your marriage. Remember? This, this is the most important part I said, is that your marriage pictures something greater. And I'm telling you that Christ jealously guards that picture. Suppose I produced a distorted painting of your daughter or your mother or something. And I put the painting on display and people look at it and say, what an ugly looking woman. What an ugly looking girl. And you, as the parent or daughter of this person who's supposed to be portrayed on this painting, you come and see the painting and you see all the flaws and the misrepresentations and you know that no, your daughter really is beautiful and that, or that your mother really is beautiful. And when you see the picture, you say, that doesn't even look like her at all. In real life, she is much more beautiful than that. She has a parent 
or the relative of this person who's supposed to be portrayed in the painting, you have every right to jealously guard the, the actual beauty of that person. So I'm telling you today, husbands and wives, that you are the painting. Christ and His church are the object of the painting. And with your marriage, you are painting a picture of how beautiful it is for Christ to interact with His church. How they operate together in joyful submission and loving service and union. So wives, every time you joyfully submit to your husband, you you paint a beautiful stroke of color on the canvas of God's sacred picture. Husbands, every time you lovingly lead your wife to further sanctification and you give yourself up in sacrifice of your own personal interests, you, in a limited way, start to paint a beautiful picture of what it means for Christ to love His church. And we start distorting that picture. We start changing it. God is serious about it. He's concerned about it. He's jealously guarding that picture. Your marriage is not about you. You know, sometimes we think of our lives like we are an extra in a film. You know, you see a film, it goes for an hour and a half, two hours long, and maybe you were an extra in the film. You were, you were one small part of it. You maybe came on screen for a few seconds. And when that movie came out, you showed all your friends and you said, look at this film. It's all about me. Let me show you all, this very beginning part where you don't see me on the screen. It's all leading up to me coming onto the screen. And then after that, it's all about me. Well, we missed the point of the film completely, didn't we? What I'm telling you is that our lives are not about us. Our marriages are not about us. We're like the extra. We're important to the bigger picture, but we're not the main feature. The main feature is God and His love, Christ and His love for the church. And so see yourself in a proper perspective and start getting in place. Okay, As an extra... Maybe you're just a bystander on the side of the road as the camera goes by quickly. Your job is not to make, you know, draw attention to yourself. Your job is not to draw attention to your marriage. Just lovely, fall, lovingly fall in line. Recognize that the picture of your marriage is only a picture. It points to something greater. And it's something very beautiful that Christ is doing for His church. He's cleansing her by the washing of the water of the Word. Let's pray. Father, heighten our view of our own marriage. Lord, You know that as the years come, there can be times of staleness in our marriage because we haven't worked at it very hard or we're expecting way too much And we're not giving ourselves at all. And as men, we need to step up and be better lovers of our wife. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to purpose in our heart to do that today. Help me, Lord, I pray. Lord, we as a church do not deserve to be loved by Christ. And yet He gave Himself for us when we were unlovely. And so I pray that that thought will help guide us us as men, when our wives are less than lovely. But most most importantly, help us to see that our, our marriages are a picture of what You're doing with this relationship, this ultimate reality of Christ 
and us, His church. We want to be purified by the Word. We want to be better models and examples for our church to see and for the world to see. And Lord, we would love to see our... You know, marriages change overnight, but, but we know that it's going to take some time. It's going to take some baby steps in the right direction, small choices. Give the men in this room courage to do that today. Help them to see clearly where they need to change, where they need to show more love to their wives as they love their own bodies. And help me to do the same, I pray in Jesus' name.